And that's our hope that you will speak to us. And in your speaking to us, that it will bring with it uh, your transforming power to change our lives, to enable us to hope in you more, to increase our faith, to enable us to walk with Jesus in a way that brings you glory and in a way that is satisfying to us and thus shows how great you really are. So I pray now that you would be with us. Help us hear this word, not neglect it, not turn from it, but through it draw near to you and have our faith and thus even our hope increase. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. As you are, let me ask you to turn, please, to Hebrews in chapter 10. Hebrews in chapter 10. I want to read verses 19 uh, through 25. Hebrews chapter 10, 19 to 25, please. Hear the word of God. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Now I want to begin by making a very direct statement. And then I want to balance it, that is clarify it, and then I want to reiterate it. Now the direct statement is this. That the Christian life, it is living the Christian life, living as a Christian... That that life is active, not passive. It's intentional, not automatic. Okay? Living the Christian life is active, not passive. It's intentional, not automatic. Uh, It engages us. It engages our whole being in it. Alright. Let me clarify that. Let me balance that by saying this. That in becoming a Christian, there's a great deal passive in us. That is, God's the one who saves us. He's the one who initiates this work. He's the one who plans it out. He's the one who elects. He's the one who chose to send His Son. And when Jesus came, He came to die for us. Uh, He came to seek and save those who are lost. In that sense, we don't seek Him. He's the one who sought us. And then He sends the Holy Spirit, of course, who comes uh, to give us new life. And when He gives us new life, when we're born again, we're passive, He's active. Uh, uh, birth always implies that someone else is the initiator, not the birthee, uh, but the one who is involved in the conception of that, you see. And so, when the Holy Spirit gives us new life, we're passive, He's active. Uh, He gives us, as Jesus would put it, ears to hear. Or as the Apostle would write, when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, He made us alive again together in Christ Jesus. And so, uh, that's all the work of God, not our work. But when He does that, it sparks in us activity. It sparks in us a response. It sparks in us action. The first response, the first activity that that uh, sparks in us is faith. 
we come to faith. We actively come to faith. It isn't something that we simply acquiesce to or something that, 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 that is passive in us, but, but we grab hold of him by faith. Given faith, gifted faith, but faith nonetheless. It produces that in us, that reaction, that response in us. And that faith then brings us to confession of our sins. And that confession of our sins brings us to repentance, to turn away from our sins, you see. And then we begin to respond to God actively by loving Him as He has loved us and so forth and so on. Uh, The work of God to bring us to Him results in Action on our part, activity on our part, intention on our part. And not only that, you see, the holiness which grows in us isn't automatic either. In living the Christian life and following after Jesus, there's intention. And and the way that we know what we're supposed to do, the way that we know how we're supposed to respond, is by way of God's commandments. He tells us directly. How we're to respond. If you want to know the will of God for your life. This is profound now. I want you to write this down. Read the commandments of God. If you want to know his will. Read the commandments of God. And what we normally want to know. When we want to know the will of God. Is what's going to happen tomorrow. So we can hedge and leverage ourselves. So that it doesn't hurt so bad. But he doesn't tell us that. He commands us to love him. And to love each other. I mean, if you're a young person and you want to know the will of God for your life, it's to love Him and to love each other. And to spend your life doing that. Spend your life learning what it means to love God. Spend your life learning what it means to love each other. Somebody asked me the other day what the, uh, uh, what the marks are of loving another person. How do you know when you're really loving? And I said, to me, the two marks are joy and pain. When you're really loving someone else, when you're really loving others, you feel both joy and pain in the midst of your life. If you don't feel those in relationship to another person, you don't love them. If you're not happy when they're happy, you don't love them. If you're not pained when they're pained, you don't love them. Well, there aren't things that take place in the course of that relationship that don't bring you joy and don't bring you pain. There's no relationship. There's no real love there. And so, mark out our lives, loving God, loving each other, and experiencing all that's true in the reality of that. And so we follow after God, you see. And it's intentional. It, 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 it moves us. It, it, it causes us to, to follow after him. Um, uh, and these commandments aren't to restrict us. No, they're to free us. They're to free us to live in the way that God has intended for human beings to live. And so we see the commandments of God. This shows our utter dependence upon God. On the one hand, we're utterly dependent upon him to move in us and to change our hearts so that we can respond. And when we get to that point of response, then we go to him and say, okay, now how do we respond? How should we respond to this? And he says, trust me. Okay. Oh, yes. And as we begin to trust, we go, that makes sense. That's precisely it. I'm trusting him. I'm believing. Now he says, confess your sins. Oh, that makes sense. Now turn from them. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, love me. Oh, that makes sense. Oh, reflect me by loving others. Oh, that makes sense. You see, all of these commandments and just flow together in, in, in telling us how we're, how we're to live. But you see, it must be intentional. This work of God in us engages our whole being. It engages our minds. It engages our, our affections, our emotions. It, it engages our behavior. 
It engages everything about us. God says, all right, now that, you, now that I've done this work in you, I want you to engage yourself in learning to think as I think, to understand life the way that I understand it from beginning to end. I want you to, to feel even the way that I feel. God says, I want you to learn to love that which I love and to hate that which I hate. I want you to be pleased with what pleases me. I want you to be repulsed by what repulses me. I want you to feel the way that I feel. He says, I want you to engage in me to that level and engage with me to that level. And then I want your behavior to reflect that which pleases me. I want your behavior to reflect my very character. And that takes engagement of of our whole lives. It isn't a passive thing, it's an active thing. As we read through the scripture, we read commandments like this. Mortify the flesh that is put to death all that sin that's in you. That isn't passive. That's active. He says, take off the old man, put on the new. That isn't passive. That's active. Jesus said, if anyone wants to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That is, I want him to die. I want you to put to death all these things. I want you to die to everything that's not, that's not true of me. That's not passive. That's active. That isn't automatic. That's intentional. We strike out in the course of our lives to live like that. The scripture says, flee Satan. Active. Intentional. is isn't something that just sort of happens upon us. We find ourselves running away from him. No, that's, it's active, you see. It says, pursue Righteousness, that's active. And you see, what makes this all the more difficult, it seems, is that, is that when we come to faith, when we begin this journey, this, this, this walk with Jesus, um, we come with all kinds of baggage. We come with baggage in our thoughts, the way that we think it needs to be transformed. But there are some thoughts that are way so natural to us that, that it's difficult for us to begin thinking the thoughts of God. And how things really are from his perspective. And thus how things really are. We come with our emotions with a great baggage. We, we, we love that which we shouldn't love. We're attracted to that which we shouldn't be attracted to. I had a person recently share with me and said, you know, when I'm sinning in a particular sin, I feel more alive than at any other time. And I say, well, of course, that's, your, that's where you're coming from. You need to confess that and repent of that and understand that isn't right. I, 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 I understand that. There's sometimes when I'm sinning, I'm just alive. Feeling. But that's the death of us, isn't it? And so we come with all this baggage in the way that we think and the way that we, the way that we feel in our own behavior. And so we have to be intentional. We have to be active. We have to pursue righteousness. We have to put to death. We have to deny ourselves. We have to take up our cross, put those things to death on that cross, and walk with Jesus. Intentional. And so you see, as we come to this particular passage, which is uh, intentional, we see these various commands of God. He's saying, listen, this is what Christ has done. This is who he is. Now this is how you're to respond. And these are active things, not passive things. These don't happen to us. Uh, these are things that we're intentional about. I'll sure the Holy Spirit's at work in us to help us through various means. But our mindset has to be, I need to take these things up. This needs to define my life. This needs to direct my life. I need to find joy in these 
things because these things are true. No matter what else I'm feeling, no matter what else I'm thinking, no matter how I'm behaving, these things are true. And these are the things that I need to, 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 to revolve my life around. And he says, okay, now Jesus has, has already done it. He's already paid the price for your sins. He's already opened up this, this, this veil. He's already taken it down so that you can enter into the very presence of God. Be justified that it's forgiven your sins, pardoned. Receive his righteousness, adopted into his family, uh, his Holy Spirit given to you to help you to live and all of that. All that's taken place. Now, what are you to do? And his first command is, all right, now. And again, these should be sort of a da reaction if we can only have a spiritual mind. He says, okay, now that that's all happened, what should you do? Well, you should enter in. Oh, oh yeah, thank you for telling me that. You should draw near to God with a full assurance of faith. Draw near to him. And is meditate upon him. Think upon him. Understand yourself to be in his very presence. And and he with you. Draw near to him. Last Sunday we talked about that. What it means to draw near to him. What it means to draw near to God. And how we do that. We do that uh, through the scriptures. As we think about him. As our minds are renewed upon him. We come to understand the love of the Father. And the grace that comes through us from our Lord Jesus. And the comfort and the help and the presence of God that comes to us through the Holy Spirit. We see all of that. We understand all of that as we draw near to God. And then secondly, he comes uh, this Sunday and tells us this. He says, uh, verse 23, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. You see, we're to, to not only draw near to him, but we're to hold fast this confession of hope. Not of faith, he says, but of hope. Uh, we see this little progression already in this passage. We're to draw near with a full assurance of faith. And now we're to hold fast this confession of hope. Faith and hope. Uh, we've thought about this before, way back in chapter 6, which was years ago, it seems. Uh, back in chapter 6 and verse 11, the author of Hebrews writes, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to the full assurance of hope until the end. And when we consider that passage, we said this. We said, if faith breeds hope, faith uh, stimulates hope in us. Faith is believing that God's word is true. That what Christ has done is true. We believe that. And when we believe that, that should spark in us. That should breed in us. That should stimulate in us hope. Because hope is that anticipation. That expectation. In fact, it's that confident expectation. It's that 100% certain expectation that all that God has promised will be realized in our lives. Sometime. We may not have it at the moment, but we're hoping. And our hope is sure. We know that that is true. We know that it will come. We know that it will be realized in our lives. We won't be stuck in this particular situation forever because we're hoping in God. Now, our hope is based on the faithfulness of God. That He is faithful. Notice how He puts it. And let us, uh, uh, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering, for He who promised is faithful. You see, when I make promises to you, no matter how loyal I am, uh, there are times when I may not fulfill those promises. 
Sometimes it's because I make stupid promises. I, I make promises I can't fulfill. I think I can, but, but I just really can't because I'm not smart enough to know that that promise is beyond me. I'm really not going to be able to do that. I'm really not going to be able to fulfill on that. And, and I know that I disappoint people when I do that. But, but it's just, it's not, my intentions are right, but I just am not good enough, uh, smart enough with my own life to fulfill all those things. Plus, I'm not sovereign over everything. There are times when things get in my way that, it caused me to be unable to fulfill a promise. Even, you know, when you say to your husband or your wife in the morning, I'll see you later, you might not. Uh, circumstances may happen. And, and you might not see them later. Uh, but you see, God knows everything. He never promises more than he can deliver. And he never lies. That would be completely out of character for him. Uh, in fact, he can always be faithful because nothing can thwart him. Nothing can get in his way. He's more powerful than everything else. So you can trust him. The profession of faith that we read this morning out of Second Timothy says just that to me in a very startling way. Uh, this saying is trustworthy. For if we have died with him, we'll also live with him. If we endure, we'll also reign with him. If we deny him, he'll also deny us. If we are faithless... I don't know, I'm just reading along that. I'd go, well, he's faithless. You know what I mean? It just sort of would go together. But then I said, no, he's faithful. Oh, yeah. Because he can't deny himself. Because he is trustworthy. He is truth. He is reliable. He is faithful. He can't not be faithful to what he's promised. Because that's who he is. To not be faithful would mean he isn't God. And so everything that he promised is true and we can trust those promises. And we see the evidence of that faithfulness in Jesus. First and foremost, because he promised that Jesus would come and he's come. But even more so this, that every single promise that God has made to us relies upon the coming of Jesus and he's come. Every single promise that God has made to us is fulfilled in Jesus. Every single promise that God has made to us is open to us in Him. Second Corinthians, the Apostle Paul puts it like this. Second Corinthians in chapter 1, verse 19. He writes, For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, whom we proclaimed among you, Silvanus and Timothy and I, was not yes and no, but in Him always yes. For all the promise of God, promises of God find their yes in Him. That is why it is through Him that we utter our Amen to God for His glory. The word Amen simply means yes. It's a transliterated word. It just simply means yes. It means so be it. That is true. That is right. It means yes. And so you see, all of God's promises are yes in Jesus. Every time we pray to God for Him to give us that which is promised to us in Jesus, He says Yes. He can't say no. That's why Jesus said, ask anything in my name and I'll give it to you. He says, ask anything according to the promises that are in me that I'm dying to give to you. And I will say yes. We don't know quite when and we don't know quite how. But that's our hope. Our hope is that all of God's promises are yes in Him. And so, as I read through the book of Hebrews, I find various promises. For instance, in Hebrews in chapter 4, verse 16, I find this promise. 
He writes, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So what is my hope in times of need? My hope in times of need is that I can go to God in Jesus' name and He'll help me. He'll give me mercy, be kind to me, He'll be compassionate towards me, He'll come and in some way touch me, and He'll give me grace. He won't cast me out. But he'll give me grace. He won't give me what I deserve. He'll give me grace in my time of need. And all of that to help me. That's my hope. And so when I'm needy, which is all the time, I know that I can go to him. That's my hope. And and, and, and at any moment in time, that's the hope I live on. Will God do it? Yes. How will he do it? I don't know. I really don't. Because, first of all, I don't know what's good for me best for me at any moment in time. I really don't know that. I think I do. I make suggestions all the time to God about what would be good at a particular moment in time. Uh, and I trust He does something with that. But, but I don't know. But my hope is He loves me. And He's proven it in Jesus. And that He is faithful. And thus He will do it. That's my hope all the time. In good times and in bad. And then there's this uh, promise as well in chapter 10 and verse 16. We read this. This is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, declare the Lord, I'll put my law, laws on their hearts. I'll write them on, my, on their minds. Then he adds, I'll remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Uh, when I sin, what's my hope? My hope that he forgives me in his faithfulness because of Jesus. That's his promise. That's my hope. It's always my hope that I'm forgiven in him. Uh, what's my hope when my heart's inclination isn't turned towards God? And I realize that and I know that. And I see the sin in my own life and I see the rebellion in my own life. And I see all of that. And I see uh, my heart isn't inclined to him. I don't love what he loves, all that he's commanded. I know my hope is that he's changing my heart. He's working in my heart. And I can pray to him to change it. And I trust then, that's my hope, uh, that he will. And chapter 12 and verse 10, he makes this promise. He says, For they, that is our fathers, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. That's amazing to me. To think that I can share in the very holiness of God. Especially with some of the thoughts I have and some of the things I say and some of the things I do. But my hope is that that's true and he'll be faithful and I will share in his holiness. And, and that as I pray that God would make me more holy, he will. You see, that's my hope. That's my promise. It's not on the good things that I've done in the past. It's not on the improvement that's been made. It's based on his faithfulness that this is his promise and, and he's faithful to us in Christ. And because of Christ, he sent his spirit and he's forming Christ in me. Then in chapter 13, verse 5, he writes this. He says, keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. Call to worship I read out of Psalm 42, which I've mentioned a number of times over these past number of weeks as we've been talking about hope from time to time. 
For the psalmist feels hopeless at that time. He feels as if the Lord has left him, forsaken him. But, but then he comes to his senses and he knows that God hasn't. He's given him this great salvation. As he begins to draw near to God in that regard, he, he's able to, 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 in a sense, come around and his hope is restored. And to be amazed at various times and various places when it appears as if God is gone. To know that he isn't. And that's our hope. That he's faithful. Even though the clouds may shield him from our eyes. We know that he's there. Because he said he will be. Then in verses 20 and 21. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing that you may do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight. That's an amazing promise. That he's equipping us with every good thing for doing his will. That's our hope. That's my hope. That's my hope every time I get up in the morning. And every morning when I get up and every time I go into a ministry situation, I pray, okay, God, you promised to equip me with every good thing for doing your will. I don't know what your will is in this particular moment, but, but I pray that you'll equip me. And that's my hope. I wouldn't take the next step. I wouldn't open my mouth if I didn't think that you're going to fulfill that promise in me at this point in time. That's my hope. And so he's saying we need to hold fast this confession uh, of our hope. But notice it's a command. It's a command to hold fast this confession of hope. And the reason it's a command, I think, is because he wants us to be intentional about it. He wants us to understand that in the course of our life, our hope can be eroded. Our hope in God can be eroded. And it can be eroded to the degree that we're not drawing near to God, first and foremost. I mean, the problem with the people to whom the author of Hebrews is writing is that their hope was eroding. And it was eroding because in chapter 2, you might remember, they weren't paying attention to what they were hearing. They weren't listening to the truth about God. They were neglecting all the promises of God. They were neglecting this great salvation. And so if we're not drawing near to God, if we're not listening to Him by way of His Word, then it's easy for our hope to erode because we'll start hoping in other things. We'll start hoping in our spouse that he or she will be with us always rather than God. And as long as my spouse is here, I'll be, I'll be happy. Or if you're a single person, as long as I, if I can only have a spouse, then I'd be happy. God said, no, I'll be with you always. We could start to hope in our business. That if my business goes well, whew, then all will be well. And we turn our attention away from hoping in God and hoping in business. We can hope in our own popularity, our own prestige, our own uh, the praise of other people towards us. We can hope in that. Because that feels so good at the time. But God said, no, don't hope in that. Hope in my affirmation of you, which I give you in Christ Jesus, the love that I give you. In Christ Jesus, this other will fade, this other will disappoint you, this other will go away, but you will be satisfied if you hope in me. Our own sin, we begin to hope in it. There are times when we hope in our own anger. We want to get angry at that other person and spout off to that other person, thinking, if I do that, everything will be great. We hope in our own lust. Oh, if I could only make good on these thoughts I'm thinking then I'll be satisfied. See? God says, no, hope in me. Be satisfied in all that I have 
for you. Circumstances can, can, can come and erode our hope. We can be in particular situations as the psalmist who writes Psalm 42. He's in a particular situation. He's away from Jerusalem and he doesn't feel close to God. His enemies are coming around him all the time saying, well, where is your God after all? And they're tormenting him. And he's tormented in the midst of this circumstance. And he, and he loses, in a sense, God. He loses his, his, the sense of God's presence with him. And so very intentionally he has to work his way back. Where is God? He has to begin to think thoughts that are true about God. God's salvation is great. God really is with me. And then his hope is restored. But it's got to be intentional. If he just stops with the circumstance and stops with the enemies and stops with how he feels, then he'll never hope. He'll become hopeless. But he draws near to God. So his hope is increased. And then notice this. Verse 24. He says, And let us consider... How to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is in the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day uh, drawing near. So we're to draw near to God in faith. We're to hold fast our confession of hope. And now we're to consider each other with the aim of stirring one another up to love and good deeds. Now, uh, let me just do a little Greek for you. The, the Greek sentence here uh, is, 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 is a bad English word order, but it's a nice Greek word order, I've been told. And it, and it goes something like this. It says, consider one another to stir up to love and good deeds. And so the emphasis, first and foremost, is to consider each other, to think about each other, to get to know each other in such a way that you can, we can stir each other up to love and good deeds. Because, you see, love and good deeds is really what living the Christian life is all about. It's loving God, loving each other. It's serving God, serving each other. I mean, that's really the essence of much of our activity, isn't it? It's, 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 it's that. Love and good deeds. And he says, I want you to, to stir each other up in such a way. But notice this. That he says that, he says, and let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some. Now, how can we stir each other up if we don't meet together? How can we consider each other if we're not together in some sense? Now, this passage is often used by me to get people to come to church on Sunday. I mean, you know, this is a great, you know, if I wrote a Hallmark card, it would be, now remember, don't neglect, da 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 And it certainly means that. Uh, because when we come together, there is a stirring up, I trust. When we come to worship together, there is a stirring up of each other to love and good deeds. I mean, as we sing together and sing to each other, we hear about God and our hope in Him increases and our love for Him grows. And we're encouraged and exhorted and all of that. I believe that the preaching of the Word is powerful and not because I'm powerful, but because the Word is powerful and the Spirit is powerful and He brings things to our attention that may not otherwise come to our attention and it stirs us up as we live our Christian lives. But I, I think what the author of Hebrews really has in mind here is not simply coming together in worship, but coming together in various venues, various times. What we would call sort of small groups, you know, you know, we have these venues of men's and women's Bible studies and covenant groups and ministry teams and, and all the like, where people come together in various groups. And the aim 
of those groups, according to the author of Hebrews here, is to think about each other in such a way with the aim of stirring each other up to love and good deeds. I mean, those, those groups should be dangerous in a sense. You know, after you come together, that you should be stirred up. You know, women should come home from women's Bible studies and their husbands say, oh, now what are you doing? What are you doing now to love and to serve other people? Men should come home from Bible studies. Their wives say, okay, now what are you doing? Now what are you into for the sake of Christ? You see, that should be the, the effect uh, on us. That's why I always encourage women, make sure your men, your husbands, go to men's retreats. They'll come back. If, we, if, it's, if it works right, they'll come back loving you more and serving you better. Because hopefully we'll get stirred up to love and serve, to love and, and good deeds, and all of that, you see. In fact, that's, that's really the basis of our, of our recruiting efforts around here, too. And this isn't a recruiting speech, because you know, I don't do that kind of stuff. It's just a right application. Uh, that's that's uh, when we're trying to get people to help with VBS, Vacation Bible School. We don't say, oh, please do this. If you don't do this, then our kids, you know, nobody will be there to help. No, we say, listen, everybody. I want you to understand how great this is. I want you to understand what God can do in the midst of the lives of children through us. I know you don't feel it. I know you're busy. I know you don't feel capable, any of that. But, but, but God is great. That's how we do it. Because you see, the key ingredient of stirring another person up to love and good deeds is your own hope in God. If you don't hope in God, if you're in a place in life where your hope isn't in Him for whatever reason, then you won't be of help in stirring others up. You may be able to sympathize and empathize, but you won't be able to help them. But you see, when you're hoping in God, and when I'm hoping in God, and that's, I'm trusting Him and I'm anticipating that all the good that He's promised will be realized. And that's the very course of my life. I'm a hopeful person because I'm hoping in God. When I come to you and, and I'm hoping in God, I know God, I know God can save little kids, I know He can work in their lives, I know He can warm their hearts towards Him in the church through something called Vacation Bible School. When I come to you and ask you to help, you're going to get stirred up. You may not do it, but you're going to get stirred up to something. You may hate me at the end of that day, but, but you're going to get stirred up, you see, because of my hope. And the only reason we want people to help, and we only want people to help, those who hope in God, who really believe that God can change the hearts and the lives of little kids. That's why when we come to people to help teach Sunday school, our hope in God is that through this teaching, people's lives will be changed. The only way we recruit people to teach women's or men's Bible studies is through our own hope in God. The only way we ask you to give money is if you hope in God. Don't give if you don't hope in God. Don't give if your anticipation isn't that He's going to meet your needs. Don't give if you don't give an anticipation that He's going to use this money in such a way that's going to help bless other people. But don't give otherwise. Only give if your hope is in Him. And so you see, when you come together in little groups and begin to talk about people who are in need, stuff gets stirred up. What can we do? How can we help? What should we give? It's only when we hope in God. And so our small groups and our gatherings together and our one-on-one -on -one times, when you meet with another person, when you meet with other people, your mindset should be this. Am I hoping in God? Is my hope in Him? And how can I export that hope in some way?
How can I stir up someone else to hope in him in such a way that they will go out and love others and that they will go out and serve them? Notice the experience of of this group of people uh, the author of Hebrews uh, writes to in chapter 10 in verse 32. He says, But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. You see, the reason they were able to give up their property joyfully, the reason they were able to identify with those people in prison and thus ruin their own reputations and perhaps their own social and economic future was because they hoped in God. Because they knew they had in Him something that was greater than all of that and couldn't be taken away. That's hope in God. And you see, when we get to that point, when we get to the point of hoping in God, we're free. We're free to give ourselves. We're free to love. We're free to serve. We're free to walk with Him. That's why he says, I want you to have faith. Draw near to God because that faith breeds hope. And when you have hope, you see, then when you're meeting together, you can aim at the other people you're meeting with to try to share that hope with them, to inspire that hope in them, to share that hope with them. And so you see, when you're in a small group and you're with a, a woman who has an unwanted pregnancy and you're with that person and you hope in God, what you're trying to do is to stir up in her love and good deeds that she wouldn't abort that child, but she would give birth to that child. And the way that you do that isn't by condemnation and guilt. It's by getting that woman to hope in God as you do. To getting her to see that God is with her and he hasn't left her and he will help her and she can go to his throne of grace and, and receive mercy and grace in that time of need. If you haven't got that hope, you won't be able to stir that up in her. But that's why you're meeting when you meet with a husband who's struggling with pornography and you sit with him and you talk, what you're trying to do is to stir him up to love and good deeds by way of your own expression of your hope in God. No, God will satisfy. God's ways are right. Turn from this. Turn to your wife, you see. And that will satisfy. You can't do that if you don't know that. If your hope isn't in him. When you're meeting with a person who's struggling in the context of their own lives with honesty. They find themselves lying. You meet with them in hopes to stir them up not to lie. But the way that you do that is to give them hope in God. Not to guilt them. Not to punish them. But to say, listen, God is truth. Trust me. Trust Him. I've experienced this. You don't need to manipulate your own life by lying. Trust Him. He's right. He's true. He'll help. He's all you need. He's with you. If you find somebody who's afraid to die, you go to them and you begin to help them to love God and die well. You can only do that if you have hope in God. Now, obviously, you've not died. So you can't explain that from a personal perspective. But you can say, let's go together in the scripture. Let's speak the word of God to each other, you see. And let's, let's understand death and life eternal. And let's walk through this painful time of sanctification as you go on to be with him. You see, 
whatever circumstance we find ourselves, we need to have this hope. And you might say, well, I don't feel that hope. I don't have that hope. And the word to you is, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. You see, oftentimes when we reach a point of hopelessness, two things happen simultaneously that is, that's death to all of us. When we find ourselves struggling to be hopeful in God, people back away from us, and we back away from them. And that's the exact opposite of what's to take place. And so when you know those who are struggling with hope, go to them. Now, there's an art to this. Don't be obnoxious. You know, don't just walk in smiling to a hopeless person and say, you know, get over it, buck up, hope in God, and see you tomorrow. Love them. Sit with them. Listen to them. Walk with them. Cry with them. But still, hope with them. Bring the very hope of God in the circumstance. And if you hope in God for them, he'll help you. You say, well, I don't feel equipped to do that kind of thing. Who does? None of us does. But hope in God, he'll help you. You'll screw it up. You'll mess it up. Nothing ever goes right by our perspective. But hang in there. And if you're one who's feeling hopeless... The word of God is hang around with other people. Hang around with hopeful people. And sometimes that's really hard to do. I mean, there's no one more obnoxious than a happy person when you're sad. Right? But still, hope in God to this degree of hanging out with his people. Move yourself to that point. To be around them and sustain that being around them. Trust. God's word is true. And when we come together, there's a stirring up. And when we come together, we're stirred up to love and good deeds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I do pray for me and for us. That we would draw near to you at all times. That we would hold fast to our confession of hope in you and thereby would be a community of people stirring one another up to love and good deeds and this I pray in Jesus name Amen please stand for the benediction as you do I remind you of our Sunday school classes happening in 15 minutes I remind you of our time this evening a very special time please come to our sacred assembly. If you've never come to one of these, um, let me relax you. Um, there is no great demand for you to come and pray out loud or do anything you're uncomfortable doing in praying. Uh, after all, we're just still Presbyterians. So we come and gather together to pray. Uh, but we hope in God. We hope in His promise to hear us and to be with us. So please come. Uh, it's time for everybody, not just for those select few intercessors, prayer warriors, whatever you want to call them. It's for all of us. We all should be that. So please come. The response to the benediction is, I will hope in God. Amen. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you 
with every good thing for doing His will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in His sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, I will hope in God. Amen.